Hey there. Thanks so much for joining us for the Life Support Podcast. It's where we talk to providers, community members, experts, and others about their experiences with health and the systems that create it. Today, we get the pleasure of talking with uh, Dr. Paulina uh, Luangate. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Paulina is a board member with CIHU, but also wears various other hats, which I'll let you uh, hear from her on in just a moment. But we're so excited to talk to her today about uh, a couple of really important, critical, intersecting issues, primary of which are diaspora and trauma. So, Paulina, can you tell me about yourself, so your name, what you're passionate about, what you do when you're not working, and then maybe a little bit of what you do when you are working? My goodness. Well, <laughs> good morning. Thank you so much, Rachel, for the introduction. So, uh, my name is Paulina Luankate, and I'm the founder and executive director for the Idaho Museum of International Diaspora, and we'll refer to it as IMID, which is the acronym throughout this podcast, but... Uh, this is this is my baby. I gave birth to the IMID back in June of 2018, and I'm very, very passionate about the topics that it enables for us to engage in dialogue and healthy discourse all around the human journey story, all around lived experiences and what lessons might we individually, small group, or as a community can learn from the trials and tribulations of the human journey and my hope for sharing stories, which is one of my passion areas, is leveraging stories to connect the mind and the heart and heal the community. And so uh, with that, I had this vision for this creative platform, a museum, if you will, but a different kind of museum that connects the communities through the stories to the cultures from around the world. So in a nutshell, that's my passion, um, all around exchanging dialogue, all around helping folks, helping people, helping communities, understanding each other, because when we open dialogue and open communication, magic happens. So when I'm not working, I'm either cooking, which I'm so, so passionate about, we'll talk about that later, I hope, and I also sew. So I make uh, a lot of my own clothes, design and make them. I do wear multiple hats, like you said, and they include not only serving as the founder and executive director of the IMID, but also serving as the Bureau Chief for the Bureau of Equity and Strategic Partnerships within the Division of Public Health of the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. And uh, there are five distinct programs under that, but it's all in the context of equity. And again, how can the um, diverse communities, uh, what are their needs? What are their um, interests and how can we better service them by being with them and hearing them and listening to them? So again, understanding their stories. And then I also teach at Boise State. Somehow this semester I'm teaching six courses. So it's just uh, really taking a lot of my, <laughs> my day and my week and, and my month. But it is a joy of mine because back to storytelling, I do incorporate case studies that have stories within them because we learn best. We remember when we're able to connect philosophical, theoretical ideologies to an actual event, whether it's personalized or whether it's uh, more broadly in context of what has happened in society. But I draw upon those stories and lessons learned and share it with my students. And I actually create course, not courses, but projects, um, which then 
influence them to draw upon their own individual stories, but also go out and seek stories and build upon the project as well. Nice. That is a lot of hats. Yeah. You, must, you must design hats in yeah. <laughs> in your clothing too. That's gonna. That's yeah, why I was gonna say the next time I'm in Boise, I would love to try your food. I'm a big foodie, so I would be. Uh, if you're inviting, I'll, I'm willing. <laughs> Just um, by nature of knowing each other, you're automatically invited. <laughs> nice, love it. Um, so you talked a lot about storytelling. So what role does storytelling play in diaspora, really? Can you go into that a little bit more? Yes, yes. Yes, Jen, uh, such an important question. Huge, huge, profound role in diaspora. When, when, I, when I think about stories, and particularly diasporas, I think about them in three buckets, past, current, and future. Survival, resiliency, and renewal is another way of looking at it, right? Uh, so there's a lot of things going on in here to get an individual from a state of chaos to a state of, okay, I think I have a grasp on what's happening on the issue and how do I minimize the tension or the anxiety or the chaos that had happened in the past and how do I go forward? And so storytelling is, is profound in that it allows us to share that burden of responsibility, that burden of the weight of the world on your shoulders and it takes a certain percentage of that and shifts it to a member or the entire audience. And when you can do that, then it's almost as if this is a, the community or the audience is helping to pull you out of wherever you're at in that state of human journey from survival to resiliency to, to becoming a renewed individual. And then the cycle repeats itself, right? So to be able to capture a myriad of stories, human journey stories for diasporas and within the IMID is what it's all about. Things that have happened in the past, we simply can't change. You don't want to change it, right? Because it's almost as if we are lessening the, the human journey of that individual or that group. We want to harness everything that has happened and hopefully do good with that story. Share it forward for the diasporas especially, because they have a remarkable journey that we all should learn from. And diasporas, and let me define diaspora really quickly. So for the IMID, we define it as the involuntary displacement of peoples, plural, from their origin homelands. And then for the IMID, in broader context, homelands or homes. So we have our refugees, we have our immigrants, but we also have human trafficked victims, adoptees, homeless community members, veterans who somehow are wandering because they have post-traumatic stress and they're not able to maintain um, stability. And so they've lost their jobs or their homes or their families. And so they've been displaced by virtue of chaos and the trauma that has uh, happened in their lives. So storytelling for the diasporas is special because Everybody's story is special and unique, and there's no competition. It's not like we're one-upping each other here. But if we can harness, again, the, the messages, the inspirations, the influence of, of that compelling story to share with people who really don't understand historical narratives um, and advance their way of thinking in a way that helps them to engage in emotional intelligence. So the ability to be able to have a conversation with anybody and pick up body cues, facial cues, 
language being used, and taking a pause and saying, whoa, perhaps I might have said something or framed something in a different way that did not resonate well with that individual or that group. And because of the body cues, now I'm level, I'm increasing my levels of emotional intelligence. I'm able to quickly adjust how I dialogue with that individual or that group, right? It's, it's now no longer about me and my feelings. It's okay, I'm going to put that aside. I need to be with you and for you. So storytelling is huge. I, I think that that's a great intro into this discussion. And uh, as we'll talk about later, I think that this is just the first part of our discussion. When we think about storytelling and think about diaspora, I think one of the things that comes first to mind is around really the generations of people that experience diaspora and trauma. Could you elaborate on the role of intergenerational trauma for subsequent generations and how this might really impact a person's health, physical and mental? Yeah, so a fully loaded question. Just, it, I mean, and this can take us a whole week just to uh, break down, right, and and have subtopics around, but Intergenerational trauma was a concept developed to explain the years of generational challenges within families. And so when you have the the trauma piece in itself, when you have generations that have struggled with the trauma and the past trauma, it does something to your emotions. And when your emotions are impacted, so for example, say that you have a grandparent or or even your parents who don't often communicate their emotions to you, that fosters that that way of behavior or thinking. And so this is where the generational trauma will happen. And so when you have emotions that are pent up in inside of you and you're not able to share that to relieve any chaos that's happening, and I'm using the word chaos to just encompass a whole host of, of, of uh, complex emotional words, your, your level of energy, your level of um, your mood changes, right? And if that changes, then it alters your state of thinking. It alters your state of how to process things. And so this is how it impacts you physically, not physically, but mentally. And then physically, you might see a child or an individual of whatever age just being quiet, being reserved. We might... Uh, stereotype them as being an introvert when there's a lot of stuff going on inside. And so this is where therapy comes into play to help people to alleviate some of that burden, the stressors, going back to our initial conversation about the profound role of storytelling within diasporas. So the bigger question that we want to ask is, how do we break this cycle? How do we help the individual break the cycle? And then you take that individual and then imagine how that might impact the community. If everybody's in that state and you have a small community, say rural Idaho, what will that do? That's super helpful. And I and I think that again, we could have you said this is this is a novel, right? That you could really elaborate on. So I think we'll have future discussions about that, but really tying that back to the idea of storytelling, right? Because you hear these stories of people who say, I had no idea that my grandparents went through, you know, were were in a concentration camp or were displaced. I thought that they just came here and I, I didn't know their story, right? And then when you start hearing those stories and how it's it's not a universal balm, but how it can really transform 
people's narratives about their family, about their culture, about their community, and about themselves. So I, I love how you kind of paint that picture of connection. On the broader scale, can you talk a little bit about what role sociopolitical factors and cultural narratives really play into the trauma from diaspora? And, and um, uh, again, uh, huge roles for both of those con contexts. So these are factors that are beyond an individual's sphere of influence to get that chaos moving forward or to get out of a person's um, way of thinking and processing things. And so uh, living in a in chaos initially that has forced an individual or family to flee. So that's past. And then in the current is almost like this uncertainty of where do I go? Which direction do I want to go? Do I want to remain in the chaos? Because sociopolitical factors or cultural uh, narratives kind of keeping me here. But now I'm in a different society. I'm, I've gone from perhaps maybe an origin country where the chaos has happened to now the host country where systems design, where the system is designed in a way to foster this perpetuation of trauma. So, but I'm a capable human being and I want to move forward. So how do I do this when this anchor is so strong, the sociopolitical factor and the cultural narrative or the religious narrative pulling me back? How do I move from that state of, of being to going forward? And that is this renewed way of living and taking control of my own human journey and being the model for my generations to come, for my community, to let them know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And so with sociopolitical factors, and, and you know this, we have infrastructures set up that kind of keep you where you're supposed to be at. And, and sometimes for some people, especially if they're struggling, that's a comfortable place to be. And what I mean by that is, they are familiar with that. They don't know or have not experienced anything else but that. So if you're a refugee and you've lived in a refugee camp for 10 to 20 years, think about the system that is set up in the refugee camp and the lack of law that helps to uh, foster people's thinking of there is going to be that light at the end of the tunnel. And then they come to the host country and they're stuck in this arena of a systems design that is keeping them in this trauma mode. And when we shift over to cultural narratives, gosh, talk about the maybe the, the differences in gender roles. Okay? Many, many countries have various layers of cultures and cultures, ethnic and race, but also cultures within the dynamics of the family. You might, as a woman, you might have married into a family where it has generations of viewing women as second or third class. But outside that family unit, within the same society, it's something else. So cultural narratives has a huge impact on the trauma. You're hitting like my spot because my family mm -hmm. came from Cuba and there's just so much things that you're saying now that I'm like, whoa, I should have stepped back and asked a little bit more questions. And like, mm -hmm. I think you're teaching me a lot now. So. Yeah, well, I, uh, and thank you so much, Jen, for saying that. And, you know, I, I come from a, a culture where that is also the norm. Right. But had it not been for my mother making that courageous decision, since my father had abandoned us, that I got to experience the feminism in my mom, staunchly independent, and there's nothing that, that we can't do because you need to survive. And if you don't do it, you're going to die. And I can't die because I have two kids to take care of. So I saw that in my mom and it has really shaped who I, who I am, who I've become. So uh, in my role as, a, as the bureau chief of 
the Bureau of Equity and Strategic Partnerships, equity is from, from the person trying to give service, whether you're a therapist or whether you're a community member or a church member or a practitioner, healthcare, behavioral health practitioner, you have to understand those factors, sociopolitical factors and the cultural narratives to be effective in your approach to help those uh, in trauma break the cycle. I guess when you've been talking and I'm thinking of my grandparents and that resilience comes into play, right? And like how they raised us. And so what role can you go into that a little bit more about how resilience plays into the journey of trauma? When I, when I hear the word resiliency, the first thing that pops into my mom or into my head is my mom. Uh, I mean, it's, it's one thing to, to have survived a, tra- a traumatic incident and it's another to remain grounded in your core values, remain grounded. And I'm going to get emotional just talking about this, but remain grounded in your integrity. And for my mom, her purpose in life was to provide uh, love, care, and structure to her children. So resiliency is is that lesson learned for, for, um, I think, for all people, right? When, When we experience something traumatic, how do we take control of our journey from that moment going forward. And that is to recognize what has happened, to talk about it, to take in even the, the, the thinking process of that trauma that has happened. And how do we move that forward? Um, how do we overcome setbacks, right? And how do we, <clears throat> how do we move forward knowing that we survived, we simply survived. And, and that state of process is resiliency. And, and to share it, like, my mom has has been actively sharing it with my brother and I, my, my brother, who's my older brother. She's always said to us, don't ever be afraid. What we've gone through, we would have died, but we didn't. There is a purpose and a reason for why we are still here. And you should not fail yourselves because you've, you've gone through this horrific journey and you're at where you're at now. So you should take that and go teach people about it. Go do something amazing, small or big, but go do something that it has a healthy outlook in life. Um, uh, to me, resiliency, mom is a solid example of resiliency. I love that. That's great. Um, so let's, let's lighten it up a little because I feel like we got really heavy. <laughs> um, and that's cool. You know, um, I think that a lot of our topics are heavy like that. Um, so we'll loop into IMED right now real quick. Um, you guys do a lot of unique things there. Um you highlight struggles and you know triumphs of culture and communities. What is one of your favorite initiatives or exhibits, and why? Mm, easy food. <laughs> there food, you go. Yes. More food. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, why? Uh, well, first and foremost, we all have to eat and eat good foods, right? But uh, food connects us, connects me especially to whoever it is that I'm enjoying the food with in a very special way. It's it's everlasting. It's sentimental. If you've been invited to a friend's house or to anybody's house and you have a sit down meal with them, you're going to remember it for the rest of your life, I would imagine. I remember having KFC at my best friend's house from grade school. I mean, it was nothing unique other than it was a sit-down meal with a white American family and they sat at the table they sat on chairs and they didn't eat rice it was chicken biscuits gravy and coleslaw right and I didn't understand why there wasn't rice (laughs) right right (laughs) 
I grew up, grew up very similar too. We always had rice in every meal. So, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I remember the feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm in a different planet. They're eating meat without rice. How can this happen? And uh, I mean, and we've talked about it since, and it's been a, something very comical, but I, it was kind of traumatic for me because there was no rice. But as I look back on that, I so appreciated that because I saw how happy my best friend's family was at the time. And I thought they could be happy without rice. And my family is happy-go-lucky. And we sit on the floor on a blanket watching TV. Nobody really talks to each other. We're eating and watching TV, but we're happy and we're together. Silent communication, sharing in the process of dining together, of enjoying good foods, of taking care of our bodies. So food, foods, its purpose, if, if used as a tool, uh, uh, brings people of diverse backgrounds not necessarily race and culture, but it brings your toddler, it brings your teenager, it brings your parents, your grandparents, aunts, uncles together in a special way. And this translates into healthy behaviors. This translates then into a healthy mindset and then a happy heart. It's a special place to be. I love it. Yeah. Food does unite and um, it, it lets you explore different ways of, that yeah. people, you know, gather, right? And mm-hmm. and, and eat and, and their sustenance, right? So very good. Love it. I, I love that. I, I want to dive a little bit more into this idea of connection and elaborate on that a little bit. So we've talked about food and we've talked a lot about storytelling and how we can develop that kind of contextual awareness to support and create those connections with people who have experienced trauma, people who have experienced diaspora. I, As I'm listening to the conversation, one of the th- questions that I have almost selfishly as somebody who doesn't have direct experience, you know, I, my, my story is a little bit different. Like at my, my family, you know, was on a farm in Virginia 200 years ago, right? I, I don't have that, that story. And so when I think about diaspora and individuals and communities that go, go through that, my, my angle or my perspective on that is, okay, how, how, can people who operate in a professional or personal setting help support, understand, um, build connection with those that have? So do you, do you have like the quick start guide? And again, this is, this is just the taste, right? We want to, we want to dive deeper into this context, but do, do you have kind of the, the, um, so, some of those insights into how people that maybe don't have that as their own story can connect with support and better um, affirm the experiences of people that have gone through diaspora and have gone through that trauma. Yeah. Well, gosh, that would require me to write a toolkit, a book, right? But I'll, I'll, uh, next project, next yeah, hat. Next project. <laughs> Let's do it together. Yeah. My response to that or my solution to that is, is not looking outside in given this scenario, how would I do it? Um, I'm, I'm going to share my own personal experience of how I have engaged with others who have a diaspora background. And I do too, right? And knowing that they have, it's, it's sharing your, your vulnerability and not just, hey, I'm going to share my vulnerability with you, but it's, I learned that your family or that you might be from this region of the world, which I understand it to be fraught with whatever, war, conflict, 
I'd love to hear more when, when you have maybe the space in your heart to share. I really want to understand. And, and I would love to share my story with you. And just even that bit of dialogue helps to all of a sudden open the one door to let you in. I've been part of groups whose cultures, cultures plural, don't really empower women to speak up and be vocal. Not at all, right? But somehow I was able to be part of that circle of dialogue among the men from that culture. I could uh, be of a different race and that's why they're able to connect, but I, I don't think so because some of the conversations that we had were quite intimate about their struggles. These were, and these, these are men of this particular culture who do not show their vulnerable sides, who do not talk to a woman unless, unless you're um, their mom. But to approach the dialogue, the opportunity, you have to be invited into the conversation, but to approach it with utmost respect, right? Um, I think helps to open up that conversation door. I talked about my brother's journey more so than my journey. And it was until the, and it, it wasn't until the end that, uh, you know, uh, uh, several occasions actually, I go, Paulina, well, what about you? We want to hear about you. We've seen you or heard about you in the community and you're very inspiring just to even hear that word. I'm like, okay, wow. They, they think that I'm someone special and I'm, I'm part of this dialogue and I could foster relationships, friendships, and this connectedness across cultures. And I can help connect um, them or whomever to this group of opening and sharing dialogue storytelling. I um, I really appreciate you sharing that perspective kind of on both sides, right? Um, is, you know, what I hear is walk in with open ears and open heart first, build, build relationship, build trust. Um, don't necessarily come in with an agenda. Um, but come in with as much awareness as you can about context in those discussions. And that, that'll really help build. Is, is that fair? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for, for summarizing it so succinctly, Rachel. I talked earlier about emotional intelligence, our ability to pick up cues. This is where emotional intelligence has to be highly activated, mm -hmm. um, but also you need to elevate cultural intelligence as well. Mm -hmm. And cultural, not necessarily the race and ethnic, but this could be, let's say you are a 25-year-old supervisor of a 57-year-old refugee from, uh, from Cambodia. You're, you're female, your staff is male, right? How do you come into that conversation? Is it, hey, can I talk to you? Or is it, I'm going to make up a name, Mike, right? Like I, um, I just saw a documentary about Southeast Asia conflict, and I, I know you're from Southeast Asia, from Cambodia. I, I would very much appreciate an opportunity to sit down, maybe over coffee, and learn about your background. Would you grant me your, that time? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Instead of hey, let's talk, and we can whatever. And you said this, Rachel. You are disconnected from the story of your ancestors who came. And let me tell you. During that time, it was potent, it was raw, it was a whole mix of emotions. To leave your origin country behind and, and resettle in a new environment, not knowing. Not knowing is pretty scary, but your version of the story is, they came, they did this, they did that, but you don't know the history. But if you did, I think it might change who and how you communicate because there's that layer of, you're like connected now 
more so than ever before. Mm-hmm. Automatically, you have a natural layer of elevated emotional and cultural intelligence. Just the fact that you are very in tune with your ancestors' history and their stories of survival and resiliency and renewal, which has enabled you to be successful and be where you're at now. I would encourage you to seek and explore the true story and the raw realities of your ancestors. I um, now just made a mental note that I'm going to call my grandmother this weekend and set aside some time where my husband can watch the kids and just listen to her. Um, So thank you. Um, It makes me a little bit emotional just thinking about that, that that's probably going to be meaningful for her too. Can, Can you tell us a little bit more about your personal journey and the ways in which that really informs the work that you do? Um, Because it sounds like that's incredibly powerful for you and what you do. And then also a really important way for you to connect with others. It's a journey for sure. And I have multiple journeys, not just the one. So life brings us unique, special, or uninvited circumstances. And I draw energy. I draw support from uh, not just from my family, from my network of friends, from my community. My personal journey as a young refugee child navigating through two cultures in Boise, Idaho, actually three cultures, right? My own, the Lao culture, my origin culture, being Idahoan, that culture of lacking diversity, and then being American. Let me tell you, that confuses the heck out of a child. I was confused with learning about all things DEI back then before it was even framed uh, the way that it is now. But navigating through observing others that are not like you, observing you in a manner that maybe is questionable, (laughs) you know what I mean? But also experiencing conversations with others that uh, is not amicable toward you as a different, as a person of color or as a person who is still struggling with English and the American Western culture and and somehow recognizing that they don't know any better and they're good people, but it's just no one has told them about our story, our meaning people who have, are in a similar situation, people have been traumatized. And that's what I love about all of this is we get to talk about the, the mental health and well-being. Right. And so, and, and although I didn't have that in, in my head growing up, I actually thought I was better than everybody because I am different. And my mom instilled that in me, right? She says, you are special and you're unique, but you also have faults. <laughs> they are judging you. They are uh, making comments because you have faults. Wow. Right. My mom saying that to, to a child that is kind of struggling with different cultures. And, and she had explained that if you show them that you're so much better than what you think they think of you, this probably wouldn't happen, right? I thought, okay, (laughs) all right, mom, I guess I'll I'll go and and improve myself so that way people aren't judging me. But my human journey story, I mean, it just influenced me to communicate to people of different backgrounds in different ways. So how I'm communicating with you is for this purpose of the podcast I mean, it's information that we can understand. But if I'm communicating to a group of grade schools or high school students, it's a different layer of communication. They don't care about my human journey story. They care about themselves. So how do I resonate with them? I share my childhood stories with them. And I walk it from past to current. And the reactions that I get, what I observe of their reaction is, wow, I, I think I have, my story has resonated with them. And 
I know that because after the class, they'll come up and share more stories, their intimate stories about their families. And same is said about me presenting with various audience groups, professional groups, church groups, and so on and so forth. And people are curious, people are interested. And uh, again, this is why I'm so passionate about storytelling and, and the powerful influence of storytelling is if we can get people to come out and share their stories, even with strangers, but there's that automatic level of trust because you have my attention or I have your attention. It, it can be profound. And so having lived through different uh, experiences and scenarios of storytelling, whether it's me telling the story or others telling me their stories, we have something special. And that is the IMID, right? Packaging these stories as a force to do good. Packaging these stories in a way that we are preserving the integrity of these stories. Rachel, you're going to talk with your grandmother. Packaging it as life's lessons, lessons learned from your family to impart to your children, to impart your family's legacy to your grandchildren. That's pretty potent and pretty special. Thanks so much for listening. Please find us on social or our website to learn more about what CHU does and how to support with and engage our work. Until next time, let's all support each other with a little life support. Mm-hmm.